We are going to try, I guess that's the best word, to communicate Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 16. We've been clipping along at one or two chapters. Now we're going to go for 11. Amen? God only knows whether we're going to make it. Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 6. Our subject is wrath upon earth. We're talking about God's wrath, and it's coming. Uh, Some people ask me, what about all these disasters, tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes? Are they natural disasters or are they supernatural? And the answer is they're supernatural according to the Bible. Psalm 148, verse 8, fire, earthquake, and stormy wind, fulfilling his word. Revelation chapter 6. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, behold, a white horse. He that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast, or living creature, say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another, and it was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast or living creature say, Come and see. And I beheld and lo, a black horse. He that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. His name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true? Dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell in the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, And lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs. 
when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us! Hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? Will you join with me in a moment of prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. We don't have the foggiest idea about how these things are going to take place. But we know one thing the Bible teaches, that it's going to happen. And I pray, Lord, that there would be a holy seriousness among all of us who love the Lord, realizing what is about to take place. And I pray, Lord, for our family and friends, associates with whom we may work, neighbors who we know do not know the Savior. May we have a renewed commitment and passion to reach them with the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Help us to understand, we pray, in the blessed name of our Lord Yeshua. Amen. There is a huge disagreement about the wrath coming on planet Earth. It's rather simple in one sense, but complex in another. What am I talking about? Turn to chapter 16, which will be the last chapter we'll deal with today. In chapter 16, it says, I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials. That's a bowl. Pour out these bowls of the wrath of God upon the earth. There are some Bible teachers of prophecy who argue that the wrath is only referring to the seven last plagues. You'll find advertisements, books, messages dealing with what they call the seven last plagues. So they see it a little differently than perhaps those who are pre-tribulational. We believe the Church of Jesus Christ is going to be out of here before the tribulation begins. They don't. The view was popularized by a book written by Marv Rosenthal, who at one time was a pre-tribulationist. And he became very enamored with chapter 16, verse 1, and decided that the real view of the rapture is what he called pre-wrath Rapture. How many of you read that book? Not a person here has read that? Oh, there's one. Well, then why am I spending time with it? Let's move on. <laughs> Seriously, it is a very, very popular view. And Mars, a great brother in the Lord. I know him. He teaches the Bible. I appreciate what he has to say. 
This is also used by those who are uh, what we call mid-tribulationalists. It is obvious from these chapters that I'm dealing with that something significant happens at the middle of the tribulation period. Our Lord even divided up the tribulation period into two halves, and so did John, as we will see in chapter 11. When I looked at this, I said, now, how do we know that these people who believe the wrath of God won't be poured out until the second half or the end, the seven last plagues, how do we know that they aren't right? And why do we think we're right? We just read chapter 6, and what does it say in verse 17? For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? I think that militates against any view other than the entire tribulation period is the day of God's wrath. The very terms, the day of God's wrath, come out of Old Testament prophets. So let's see if we can just break this down for a moment. The opening eight verses, we have the uh, seals are the first set of judgments. They're being broken. If I had a scroll, I thought about bringing one. Uh, If I had it up here, an ancient scroll, the seal actually has to be broken before you can unravel it and read some more things. When the seventh seal is broken... Its message goes on quite a long time, and it's called seven trumpets. When the seventh trumpet is blown, it contains all that Revelation teaches will go to the end of the tribulation, including the seven bowls of wrath. So let's see if we can just put this together. First, there are seven seals to be broken. When the seventh seal is broken... We have seven trumpets. They have messages announcing the judgment of God to planet earth. When the seventh trumpet is blown, which appears to be blowing at the middle of the tribulation, the last half involves seven bowls of wrath. I know it can be confusing. I hope that will break it down for you. When we open those seal judgments... Here's what we see. In the first eight verses, we see the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as people describe it. Riders on four horses, and they are riders of judgment. Some people think the white horse rider is our Lord. No, he wouldn't be associated with the other three in that manner. No, this is talking more of the Antichrist, a counterfeit Christ. And according to the Bible here in chapter 6, the first seal, uh, he has a bow and a crown was given to him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Well, that certainly isn't the Lord. On the Lord's head is not just a crown, Stephanos, a human-made crown, but on his head, as was mentioned in the last message, are many diadems. These are talking about official royal uh, crowns on the heads of those who are kings and so forth. 
So no, this is not referring to Christ. It's referring to judgment that's coming on the planet. And we read in the second seal that it's red and it takes peace from the earth. Well, that can be easily accepted by all of us because we've been watching the deterioration of the whole peace process as it relates to the nation of Israel. Several of you have asked me to say something about it, so here it comes. In this next month, we have the General Assembly of the United Nations meeting in New York City. On September 15th uh, is the proposed date for introducing a resolution to the General Assembly that would declare a Palestinian state in Israel, with full dimensions being decided, without any negotiation with Israel. It is a very dangerous thing. You say, well, what can stop it? The Security Council can stop it. But the head of the General Assembly this year is Bahrain, who right now is a Muslim state, doesn't care for America or Israel. And if you think that's bad, the Security Council that has a lot of power, it's headed up by Qatar. Qatar, next to Yemen, on the, as part of the Gulf states, is also very anti-Israel and anti-America. Now, the leader of the Security Council rotates, but there are five permanent members including Russia and Germany and France and England and the United States. Any one of those five can veto any resolution in the United Nations. It only takes one, and the issue is done. Israel has been hoping that the United States would veto it. Uh, all of our congressmen who have been to Israel this summer, and a lot of them have, both Republicans and Democrats, to reassure Israel that we're behind them and stand with them, all of them have become concerned this summer over statements made by the president of our country. I'm not here to bash Obama. I don't agree with him. In fact, I don't think there's anything he's ever said or done in these two and a half years that I agree with. And so it makes me uncomfortable to have a president like that, but I know what the Bible teaches. I'm to pray for him. And so I do pray for him. Our ministry, Hope for Today, at our weekly prayer meetings, we pray for President Obama that he'd become born again, surprise us all. But anyway, um, I think we all need to be a little cautious you don't know this, perhaps, but if you've been reading our articles on our website, davidhawking.org, you know that we've been bringing to light some of the things that have been said this summer. Our president, for the first time of any president, has been not only condemning Israel, but threatening them that if we don't do if Israel doesn't do what Obama wants them to do, that he will not veto this uh, resolution coming in September. 
Israel's very concerned. They are putting their entire military forces on alert during the entire month of September. Folks, I don't know how to tell you this, but we're in for some dangerous days. People have asked me, is this Armageddon? No, but it's a prelude. If you notice on these horses, please, it tells us in verse 8 that death and hell, or Hades, the temporary abode of the wicked dead, uh, they're going to have power over a fourth part of the earth. Now let's uh, jump the population of planet earth to 8 billion. It's getting close anyway. That means... At the beginning of the tribulation period, you're going to see two billion people massacred and killed on planet Earth. It's almost hard to fathom, isn't it? Eight billion people on the planet, two billion of them, I didn't say million, I said billion, are going to be dead at the beginning of the tribulation so the disasters we're seeing now, and uh, many of them have brought the death toll up of, of planet Earth in terms of those who have died and lost their lives. None of the disasters, people, come close to the tribulation in the day of the Lord. None of them. There are people on television and internet sites who are talking about we're already in the tribulation. These are events that are happening. Uh, this hurricane right now, Hurricane Irene, on the East Coast, there are websites calling it the tribulation period. No, it is not. We are not close to it yet. It's going to be absolutely terrible and awful what's going to happen when the tribulation begins. Now Jesus in Matthew 24, 4 to 8, talked to us about birth pangs. That's a woman travailing in pain, getting ready to give birth. The baby in that illustration is the tribulation. The birth pangs precede it. So if you want to stick them somewhere, you can stick them there. Are we having birth pangs like Jesus described, the answer is yes, we are. Are we having earthquakes showing up in places we didn't expect? Yes, we have, just recently. Are we having pestilences and plagues that are absolutely beyond any remedy? All you have to do is go to the Center of Disease Control in Atlanta and to learn the awful news. There were only two of these in 1950, in the sexual disease department, we have 126, and they don't have any cure or any answer. Yes, my friends, these are birth pang days. The disasters, the tsunamis, the tornadoes, the hurricanes, it's all a warning from God. Birth pangs. And the woman who's travailing in pain, the tribulation period itself, is about ready to explode on the planet. 
Let's go to a second matter here, and that's in verse 9 to 11. The redeemed who were martyred. Notice that they communicate even though they're part of the dead. People often ask me, what do we do when we die? Are we just kind of in a nebulous inner space type thing? What what are we? Are we asleep? Uh, There are people who believe that, who say they love the Lord, but they believe in soul sleep. No, on the basis of this, we'd have to say it's not true. That people who have died are able to communicate they are not asleep. By the way, they cry with a loud voice. So I'm just getting ready for it. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you avenge our blood? Well, the answer is the tribulation is the day when God will avenge the blood of the martyrs. It says white robes were given unto them. People say to me, well, if you don't have a body, how can you put a robe on it? Well, that's the wrong way to ask the question. If they put a white robe on them, they probably have a body. Amen? Now, some call it a temporary body. Um, We are going to get a final body at the resurrection, which happens for Old Testament believers at the end of the tribulation. But according to 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, believers in the church age who die immediately get this new body. It's temporary in one sense. We're looking forward to a permanent body that God's going to give us. But you don't put a white robe on gas and vapor. Amen? It's a real physical body. They're told to rest a little while until the rest of their brethren who are going to be killed will join them. And uh, those are the redeemed who are martyred. Let's take a third matter here. And that's a reminder that God's wrath has come. We're told it's a great earthquake, verse 12. The sun became black and the moon became as blood. That's a simile. Looked like blood. The stars of heaven fell. Meteorite shower, perhaps. I don't know about this, but I saw it on the Jet Propulsion Laboratory website from Caltech in Berkeley. I looked at it yesterday. There's a gigantic cloud. Huge, multicolored cloud in outer space that has moved rather rapidly to planet Earth. Yesterday, they found out what was behind it. The biggest asteroid they've ever seen. And it was causing the movement of this gigantic cloud. You say, well, what does that mean? I, I have no idea. You say, then why are you telling us? To scare you to death. (laughs) The point is that our Lord told us there's going to be signs in the heavens. And a lot of us take that so easy, like, really? Um, What kind of signs are you talking about? A red flag up there? I just want to warn you all that everything the Old Testament prophets said about the day of the Lord, the Great Tribulation, 
is not a picnic. We are talking about the worst disaster and holocaust of terror that this planet has ever seen. The great day of God's wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Obviously, no one. Now, go to chapter 7, please. Chapter 7 has 17 verses in it, and it deals with the remnant who will believe in the day of God's wrath. And this remnant is composed of two major groups. Number one, what we call sealed servants in the first eight verses. After these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. He cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them, all Jehovah Witnesses. No, 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 no. I feel sorry for the Jehovah Witnesses because they use this number here, 144,000. And you might be interested to know that in that projected group of Jehovah Witnesses, they now are up to 250,000. So somebody's going to be left out. But these are not Jehovah Witnesses. They're not Gentiles. Verse 4. Those who were sealed with 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And then it lists them, like Judah and Reuben and Gad and Asher and Naphtali and Manasseh and Simeon and Levi and Issachar and Zebulun and Joseph, and Benjamin, or Benjamin. Each one, 12,000. A total of 144,000 Jews. Wow. We will learn later, in chapter 14, that they're going to take the gospel to the entire world. Wow. I think pound for pound, if you put a Jew who's saved next to a Gentile who is saved, the Jew will outwork him every time. They have a zeal now, but not knowledge of the Savior. One day they will. Verse 9 brings another group up called saved saints. These are Gentiles. Verse 9, Lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations, kindreds, people, and tongues stood before the throne before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne, and the elders, so the elders are not angels and vice versa, and the four living creatures, the worship leaders of heaven, the cherubim, and they fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. 
And all God's people said. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these that are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. He said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. And now comes Old Testament promises. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. And this is a precious sentence also found in chapter 21. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Amen. One day, things are going to be different. Now coming to chapter 8 and going through chapter 10, we have the revelation of trumpet judgments. Look at chapter 8. When he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. I'll never forget hearing my good friend, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, in my church, saying from this passage, Dearly beloved, it is evident to me that there will be no women in heaven. Because there was silence for half an hour. I about died from embarrassment. But those of you who knew McGee knew he'd say just about anything. At his 80th birthday party, he died at 86. He had his Orange County Bible study in my church. And uh, at his 80th birthday party, he said to me, David, you know what's great about being 80? I said, what? He said, you can say anything you want and nobody cares. That was J. Vernon McGee. Great man of God. And one filled with humor. He used to say, never take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously, but not yourself. You can be replaced. Obviously, he did not have the gift of comfort. Now let's take a look at what we have here. These are not easy. In chapter 8, we have the opening that announces seven trumpets from the seven angels that stood before God. And uh, it's interesting that there is temple matters here where they have a golden censer and incense to offer up Prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. People say to me, is that literal? Well, I see no symbolic language. It appears there is a temple in heaven. The smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. 
He takes the censer and filled it with fire of the altar, casts it to the earth, and there are voices, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. And the seven angels with the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Trumpet number one, hail and fire mingled with blood. Trumpet number two, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea. In May of 1980, I was in Yakima, Washington, preaching a Sunday morning service when Mount St. Helens blew. The title of my message that morning was Earthquakes in Bible Prophecy. People started panicking. They rushed to the windows and saw this huge smoke-filled disaster heading right for us. Before we could hardly get our act together and get out of the church, there was three feet of ash all over the ground. You had to walk through that to get to your car and then hope your car would start. It was a great mountain that blew, a volcano. People say, well, maybe this is what this is. I don't know. Trumpet number three, a great star from heaven. Is it a meteor? Is it an asteroid? I don't know. Burning, as it were, a lamp. It's on fire. Trumpet number four, the sun, the moon, and the stars are smitten, a third part of them. So things are getting dark. And an angel immediately shows up and says, whoa, 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 you can't believe what's coming. It's worse the next three. Trumpet number five, indeed, is described in chapter 9 as being a terrible plague of locusts. And where do they come from? Out of the bottomless pit. Are they literal? All I can tell you is, I have seen a locust, and they don't look anything like these. But they have the ability to torment. Verse 5 of chapter 9, they can torment like the torment of a scorpion when it striketh a man. Verse 6 reminds you of what a tragedy it is. For men shall seek death. They'll want to die, but they can't find it. They'll desire to die, and death shall flee from them. The shapes of these locusts were likened to horses prepared into battle. On their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold. Their faces were as the faces of men. This appears to be quotation from Joel chapter 1 on the coming day of the Lord. They had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. Now, one of the greatest prophecy books ever to be written in America was written by Hal Lindsey back in the 1950s. Maybe you read it. 
The Late Great Planet Earth. How many of you read that book? Ah, a lot of you have. In that book, Hal Lindsey said what he now regrets, that these are Vietnam helicopters. Well, as time moved on, of course, better to say what God says, no more and no less. I really don't know what they're going to be like other than what's revealed in Scripture. Look at verse 10. They had tails like unto scorpions, stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. They had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit. Well, these are unusual locusts because they don't have a leader. You say, well, what keeps them together as they tear up a cornfield or a granary? And the answer is the wind. It is the wind that drives them. But this one is the angel of the bottomless pit. That's the word abyss. Whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue has his name Apollyon. Both words meaning destroyer. And then he says, well, that's the first woe, but we got two more that are coming. You feel like saying, good grief, how much more can we take? Trumpet number six. Two hundred million horsemen loosed to slay a third of humanity that was left from the seal judgment plague. Now, if the world stands at eight billion, we're almost there now. Two billion are destroyed in the seal judgments. That leaves us six billion people. According to this judgment, one-third of them, which would be two billion, are going to be destroyed by this army of 200 million. I have books in my library that said this has to be figurative because nobody comes even close to an army that big. Well, they were written a long time ago. China already has more than that. It also speaks about kings of the east. It it also tells us in chapter 9 that there are four angels bound in the great river Euphrates, which is the natural barrier from the eastern kings coming to Israel. And they came on horses. You talk about unusual. Verse 17, they have breastplates of fire, of jacinth and brimstone, and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions. And out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone, and by these three was the third part of men killed. By the fire, by the smoke, by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. Their power is in their mouth and in their tails. Their tails were like unto serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. Wow. It hurts to read it. Verse 20. Watch carefully these words. And the rest of the men, which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils, demons, 
idols of gold and silver and brass and stone of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. And look at this next phrase. Neither repented they of their murders nor of their sorceries. That's the word pharmaceutical, drug addiction. Nor of their fornication. Pornea refers to all kinds of sexual sin. Nor of their thefts. My friends, what we have here is a catastrophic demise or death of society as we know it now. And apparently, it's the demons of hell that are behind it. And yet people still will not repent, knowing that these judgments are a part of a great period of time known as the day of God's wrath. I don't know what you think about all this, but I'm telling you, I have no inclination or intelligence to believe they are anything but literal disasters. Maybe by something we don't know, but the book of Revelation tells us the numbers of people who are killed. These are literal. Now, trumpet number seven is in chapter 10 where the mystery of God is finished. This causes people a little trouble. It says, another mighty angel. And there are several books that say this is Jesus. Excuse me? He is not another mighty angel. He controls the angels and tells them what to do. He is not one of them. But this is another mighty angel. Well, who would another one be? Well, Gabriel is an angel of power or strength. But he's clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face were as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. This is similar to chapter 1. So people think, well, this must be uh, our Lord Jesus. No. It could possibly be Michael, the archangel. There's only one archangel, not seven. Only one. Now, it says he had in his hand a little book opened. In other words, it's been opened, and it's now smaller than what it was. Is this possibly the scroll that began to be opened in chapter 4? That's a possibility. Now, this angel sets his right foot on the sea and left foot on the earth and cries with a loud voice, as when a lion roareth. Well, our Lord is called a lion. That's why some believe it's him, but it can't be because he's not another angel. The seven thunders utter their voices. And the voice says, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. The angel which I saw stand on the sea and on the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven and the things that therein are and the earth and the things that therein are and the sea and the things which are therein that there should be time no longer. Now, folks, that verse ought to settle the fact that it is not our Lord. It is not God the Father. It's an angel. Because the angel is going to swear by him who did create. And what is he going to swear? 
that there should be time no longer. What is that talking about? Well, certainly there won't be much time left in the tribulation period. But I believe the issue is talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ to the planet. Armageddon is going to be announced in chapter 16. But what it is saying at this point, well, we've already seen some judgments. We've been going through the scroll, and it's now smaller than it was. But the fact is, the mystery of God that all of us have wondered about throughout history, when are you going to avenge our blood? We learned back in chapter 6, the martyrs screaming it out. And I think the answer is quite obvious. The answer is now. Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth on the sea and the earth. And I went unto the angel and said, Give me the little book, the little scroll. He said unto me, Take it and eat it. It will make thy belly bitter, but it will be in your mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. This is a quotation out of the Old Testament. But the point is, it has a sweetness to it. This seven-sealed scroll is being opened and now is smaller in terms of what remains. But it was sweet to the taste. Why? Because it's the, it's the fact that we're getting near the return of our blessed Lord, the hope, the blessed hope, looking for the blessed hope and the rapture? No, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the most dramatic event that planet Earth has ever experienced. And it was sweet when he tasted it. It's coming. The time will be no more. We're ready to... But what happened? It turned sour in his belly because he will realize again the results and consequences of these terrible judgments. May we also understand it. Let's move, please, to a four-chapter list of tribulation events. The realization of tribulation events. We'll start in chapter 11. And it begins with the measuring of a temple. My Jewish friends ask more than my Gentile friends do. Is this the temple of the Messiah? The answer is no. The temple of the Messiah will be built after the tribulation as a part of the millennial kingdom of our Lord. The last nine chapters of Ezekiel deal with that. But this temple is measured and it says... Verse 2, that don't measure the outer court. Why? It's given to Gentiles. The holy city, they'll tread underfoot 40 and 2 months. Now that's one half of the tribulation. Verse 3, and I'll give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Wow. 
Who are these witnesses? Well, let's take a look at them. Verse 6, they have power to shut heaven that it rain not. Who comes to mind? Amen? Who comes to mind? Elijah, Eliyahu, the prophet of God. Elijah's one of them. Let's keep reading. They have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Who comes to mind? Moshe, Moses. Now some people say it's Enoch and Elijah for their reasons. No, no, no. The Bible's made it clear it's Moses and Elijah. Have you noticed that Moses and Elijah show up at key events in the Bible? Do you remember uh, when Jesus ascended to heaven? It says two men in white apparel said, You men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go. And I got book after book that says there are two angels. It doesn't say that they're angels. It says two men in white apparel. I suggest to you it's Moses and Elijah. They keep showing up at key events relating to our Messiah. And I'm kind of excited about that. I'll tell you why. Many years ago when I was doing one of my early series on Revelation, I called the local Jewish rabbi. And I said, are you familiar with the book of Revelation? He says, yes, sir. I studied it in school. Are you familiar with chapter 11 about the two witnesses? Yes, I am. I said, who do you think they are? He said, what a dumb question. It's Moses and Elijah. I said, why did you say that so quickly? He said, let me just tell you something, David. I know you're trying to be very uh, open and honest and sincere. The Bible already tells you who they are. One of them has to be Elijah. That's the reference. And one of them has to be Moses. And I said, well, why is that significant? He said, well, if you would attend synagogue more often, you would understand that those are the only two guys that will bring the Jews out. And I thought, wow. (laughs) Moses, the great lawgiver, Elijah, the greatest prophet. Of course, if they're on the earth, we're going to have a Jewish response. Because in chapter 14, we're going to learn that these two men are responsible for a great turning to the Lord. A remnant is going to believe. Wow. This is just David talking now. You don't have to believe it. And as a matter of fact, I know most of you already, seeing you here just in a few hours, that you pretty well have a mind of your own. Amen? Well, here's my point. These two witnesses, I believe, are Moses and Elijah, and I believe they're going to show up. But they're going to be killed, aren't they? But it does tell us that the remnant gave glory to the God of Israel. That's like a message of salvation. 
If you ask me, where do we get the 144,000 Jews? Answer, they respond to the witness of the two witnesses. As my rabbi friend said, hey, if Moses and Elijah come to our town, they're all going to turn out. That's where we get the 144,000. They are the remnant that are going to turn to the Lord. And they are going to take the everlasting gospel over the whole world. I'm not done with that yet, but we're not there yet. We'll get there in just a moment. We have a message of voices in heaven also in chapter 11. And a seventh angel sounds. I love this. At the middle of the tribulation, God blows the seventh trumpet. And that is the message of the end. Look at verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded. There were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Messiah, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their thrones fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry. Thy wrath has come, the time of the dead, that they should be judged. And thou shouldst give reward unto thy servants the prophets and to the saints and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldst destroy them which destroyed the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of the covenant, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and earthquake and great hail. One of my Jewish rabbi friends called me uh, when we got this invitation, a lot of us did, I did, he did also, to go and visit Ethiopia and see the Ark of the Covenant. So I asked him, I said, are you going to go? He said, of course not. I said, why? He said, because the Ark of the Covenant isn't in Ethiopia. Plus the fact, I don't have the money to buy a ticket over there. He says, you're not going to go, are you, David? I said, well, I'm thinking about it. He said, I thought you were a student of the book of Revelation. I said, well, I have taught it a number of times. Well, then what's the problem? You know, I like the way Jewish guys talk. I really do. They get to the point faster. But anyway, he said, the Bible already told you where the Ark of the Covenant is. It's in heaven. And then his last remark I've never forgotten. Oh, by the way, God is not in the box. Boy, is that a great reminder for all of us. Well, when we come to chapter 12, do we have an interesting problem? We have a woman clothed with the sun. And once again, Bible prophecy teachers debating this matter. I don't, I don't understand the debate. Open your Bible, chapter 12, verse 1. There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a great sign. A woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, under, upon her head, a crown of twelve stars, and she being with child, travailing in birth, pain to be delivered. There appeared another wonder, and now it's a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, crowns on his heads. 
And with his tail, he drew a third part of the stars of heaven. Stars are angels, according to chapter 1, verse 20. And he cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Now look at this. And her child was what? Caught up. Harpazo. Same word for the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4. A rapture occurred. The child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her a thousand two hundred and three score days. That's one half of the tribulation, presumably the second half. Now, according to the Bible, this woman clothed with a son is associated with the dream of Joseph. Verse 1 has already been mapped out in the Bible as the dream of Joseph. The woman represents Israel, and there's no doubt about it. She is also attacked by the dragon, which the dragon has continued to do throughout human history. She's assisted by the protection and provision of God himself. God has a place prepared for her in the wilderness. Some people believe it's Petra. I think we've said enough about Petra that it probably isn't going to be Petra. But something else is introduced. A beast here. A dragon. Look please at chapter 12, verse 7, before we get to chapter 13. It says, There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Now, folks, you cannot believe how many people have come to me and say, Is that when the devil was kicked out of heaven between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2? That's called the gap theory. Why is it a theory? Because the Bible does not say in the book of Genesis that the devil was kicked out of heaven then. Well, what about Isaiah 14 Ezekiel 28? What about it? Well, isn't that referring to when Satan was kicked? No. It's referring to a moral fall. The sin of Satan. His arrogance and pride. Well, what's he doing up in heaven? Well, in the book of Job, he was up there accusing Job and telling God that you keep protecting this man. If you just let go a little bit, 
you'd see what I could do to him. That's a great story, Job. Well, here's the problem. He's still in heaven. Heaven is a courtroom. The Father is on the throne. And there's a prosecuting attorney there called the devil, the accuser of the brethren. And he does it day and night, driving people crazy. He's probably mentioned your name and mine already. And the Bible teaches us not to worry about it because we have a defense attorney up there, an advocate, Jesus Christ our Lord, who ever lives to intercede for us. Did you know that Jesus was praying for you when you took a nap this morning during the sessions? If I know that, then he knows that. I was watching it. You know, I I love to talk about the intercessory work of our Lord. I need a defense, don't you? And it's Jesus Christ. Sometimes we go to our friends and say, hey, would you pray for me? Man, I got some serious stuff coming down. Well, there's one already in heaven praying for you. He never stops. That's how much he loves you. Isn't that great? And he's also encouraging us in this chapter by telling us, oh, don't worry, Michael, and he's the archangel, and all the good angels, my holy angels, they're going to take care of him. They're going to kick him out during the tribulation period. Uh, Just to remind you of this, look at verse 12 of chapter 12. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, Ye that dwell in them, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman who brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she's nourished, For a time, times, and half a time from the face of the serpent. That's three and a half years. The serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman. The earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth, angry with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, Israel, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Listen, folks. These things are rather dramatic. Rather difficult to imagine them happening. But there's no symbolic language again. It's going to take place. I don't know if you know this or not clearly, but all that comes to an end-time battle we call Armageddon and everything that might precede it is all directed against the woman, Israel. Satan hates the woman. Where did anti-Semitism come from? The devil. 
He hates the Jews. They brought forth the Messiah. He's going to do everything he can to kill them. And so Satan has resurrected a religion of the end time that our government will not even pay attention to. Oh, it's just a few radical terrorists. No, it's not. It's what the Koran actually teaches. And if you're Muslim here, I recommend that you understand that you are worshiping a false god that you call Allah, one of 360 pagan deities of ancient Mecca. You are worshiping a false prophet, Muhammad, who was a liar. It's easy to prove it. He told his people there were people living on the moon. There are no people on the moon. That and many others. It's a false religion with a false prophet and a false god. And if you follow it, you're headed for hell, not heaven. That's how serious it is. We love you. Who loves you the most? The one who will tell you what will happen to you if you continue to believe this based on the Bible, which your Koran says is the authority of God himself. You got a problem as I see it. If the Bible is the authority of God, as the Koran teaches, then why don't you believe it? And why don't you turn your back on the false teaching of Islam? We love you. We don't hate you. You are trapped by a terrible system by the father of lies, the devil himself. Consider that in the theology of Islam, you are required to lie to the non-Muslim. But God tells us to stop lying and to speak truth every man with his neighbor. Something's really wrong here. And then we come to chapter 13. You talk about what's coming. We call it the marvel of the beast in verses 1 and 10. The beast is not the word for the four angels of heaven. That is the word living creature. No, this is a wild, untamed, ferocious beast. Verse 1, chapter 13. And I stood upon the sand of the sea. I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads a name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear. His mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his seat, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. They worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. They worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast who is able to make war with him? There was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, by the way, these are quotations from the book of Daniel. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months, three and a half years. He opened his mouth and blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. Wow. 
It was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth in the captivity shall go in the captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. But in chapter 13, verse 11, another beast comes forth. And it has two horns like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. And he is able to perform great miracles. Verse 13, he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. He deceives them by miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. Saying to them they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be what? Killed. What happens to the great Gentile multitude of chapter 7? They are killed. Wow. He causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand and in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that hath the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man. His number is 666. The mark of the beast. There's religious groups who believe that if you don't practice worship on the Sabbath day, you have taken the mark of the beast. After reading what you have in Revelation, do you not see how foolish that is? How far short from what it really is. In chapter 14, we have a map of what takes place during the tribulation. I looked, and a lamb stood on Mount Zion with 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. Here's the map. First, the work of the 144,000. These are going to be first fruits unto God and to the lamb. Second, is the word of the gospel, verse 6 and 7. The fact that it's associated with the first four verses suggests it is the 144,000 who will take the everlasting gospel to the whole world. Third, the way God deals with Babylon. I'm not going to say any more because our next message out of chapter 17 and 18 will deal with that. Only to point out to you that verse 5 says, Babylon is fallen. It's coming down, that great city who made all nations drunk with the wrath of her sexual sin. Number four, the wrath of God upon those who worship the beast. 
Verse 10, they shall drink the wine of the wrath of God. The smoke of their torment, verse 11, will ascend up forever and ever. They have no rest, day nor night, who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. And number five, you have the warmth of God's comfort to the saints. Blessed are they who die in the Lord, that they may rest from their labors. I had an interesting situation happen to me not too long ago. I was preaching in a church, and um, I gave an invitation at the end of it. And down the aisle came a 96-year-old woman uh, handling one of those little... um, I was going to say go-kart. No. A walker. Anyway, she came down front and I said, introduced, she introduced herself and I said, well, what can I do for you? She said, I want you to pray for me that I be healed. I said, do you want a good job? She said, what? Well, do, do you really want to be healed or are you just messing around with me? You're 96 years old. Do you want a job that will heal you completely? She said, of course. I said, then drop dead. I could not believe it came out of my mouth. She looked at me and said, is there anyone else here I could talk to? (laughs) We both are having a good laugh over it. She's still alive. And she got a big kick out of it. You know, it's true. You, you want to be totally healed, everything? Yes, well then drop dead. Blessed are they who die in the Lord. They will rest from all their labors. Amen? What a joy that is. And number six, we have the winepress of God's wrath. In verses 14 to 20 of chapter 14, what is it talking about? It has a harvest uh, illustration as well as the vineyard. And we have this interesting statement about the great winepress of the wrath of God. That's found in several passages in the Old Testament prophets. It's referring to the day of the Lord, the tribulation period. But we have this statement in verse 20. The wine press was trodden outside the city. It's going to be trodden by the Messiah alone, by the way. And blood will come out of the wine press, even under the horses' bridles, by the space of a thousand six hundred furlongs. That's 180 miles. Some say that's the radius around Jerusalem. No, that would put you out in the Mediterranean. Some say it's the distance from Haifa through the Vale of Esdraelon or the Valley of Armageddon all the way down the Jordan River to the Dead Sea. That's a possibility. But I think it's more likely referring to the fact that Israel will become a bloodbath at Armageddon. The enemies of Israel will be killed by the Messiah himself. The blood will flow to the horses' bridles. 
180 miles is exactly from Dan to Beersheba is the distance, is the normal distance that you refer to north to south when you're referring to the land of Israel. Chapter 15 and 16, the results of the seven last plagues. In chapter 15, the scene is in heaven. They're singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And the temple is filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. No man was able to enter because the seven plagues are going to be fulfilled. Bowls of wrath. And what are they? Plague one is a noisome and grievous sore. According to chapter 16 and verse 2. Secondly, the sea is going to become as the blood of a dead man. Unbelievable. Verse 3, every living soul died in the sea. Plague 3, the rivers and fountains of water are going to become blood. Verse 4, men are going to be scorched with great heat. According to verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the, under the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. They were scorched with great heat, blasphemed the name of God, which had power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. Plague number five, the kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain. Plague six, the whole world will be gathered to the battle of Armageddon. Wow. Three unclean spirits like frogs. doesn't say they're frogs. Demonic spirits are going to come out of the mouth of the dragon, the antichrist, and the false prophet. And they're going to stir through miracles all the kings of the earth to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And the quick insert in verse 15, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they were gathered to Armageddon. And plague number seven, a great earthquake. It says, verse 18, Such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. Great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. This we don't laugh at anymore as being just a generalized hypothetical situation. No, it says every island fled away and the mountains were not found. Folks, tsunamis have already caused that. Not worldwide yet, but we've seen them do the exact same thing. There fell upon men great hail out of heaven, the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians. 
Let's start with chapter 1, verse 10. We read this. To wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Some people say, well, that's hell. And he certainly has delivered us from hell. No, I think it's the wrath of the tribulation. Why? Look at chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians, verse 9. For God hath not appointed us to wrath. Is that just referring to hell? No. If you go back to verse 1 and start reading, it's the day of the Lord that he's talking about. The day that we've been describing for all these chapters in the book of Revelation. God hath not appointed us to that wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said. How about hallelujah? How about thank you, Lord? We have been delivered. Yes, I am a pre-tribulationist. I don't believe that people who believe we're going to go through the tribulation, I don't believe they've got their brain on right. I believe they need spiritual counseling. You want to go through that tribulation period? You've got to be kidding me. He's delivered us, praise God, from the wrath of God to come. Thus endeth 11 chapters of coming disaster. You have talked about the tribulation period and so forth. There appears to be another time of a war coming, which is described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Would you tie that war of Gog and Magog together into, or does it tie into what you've been talking about? Um, In the last two years, I think I've done Gog and Magog seven times. Um... I truly want to respect Bible prophecy teachers who disagree with one another over this. In the last time, I was asked to uh, map out from those two chapters any clues as to when it might occur. There's a little different way of presenting it. Um, Such fine men as Dave Hunt uh, has written on this and believes it's Armageddon. And also from a Jewish roots point of view, Arnold Frutenbaum also believes that it is Armageddon. Uh, Dr. John Walvoord, who's in heaven now and knows the truth, uh, also believed it was Armageddon. There's a whole host of men who are thinking that it might be before the tribulation begins. Uh, I'm not a part of that group. I'm not convinced that that's possible. I think the thing that turned me off to early views of Gog and Magog uh, is one, the great supper by the vultures, which is mentioned in Bible prophecy, is occurring at Armageddon. So why would God be inconsistent that way? I, I, I just find that hard. And the other thing that made me uh, feel troubled about a view that places it at another time 
is in chapter 38, verse 17. Uh, the Lord says to Gog, Art thou he whom the former prophets spoke of? Well, the only thing they spoke about was the Assyrian, the Babylonian, the Chaldean. Uh, that doesn't help us on figuring out the date of it. I'm not sure that we're going to be able to be specific about Ezekiel 38 and 39. I think it seems to me to be more likely, in light of the things that are described there, to be Armageddon. And uh, so I'm still in that category of, uh, yeah, show me what you got, I'd like to look at it. Not trying to be dogmatic, because that's usually grown-up puppyism. But uh, I do believe it's a serious issue. We have also the matter of Psalm 83. Bill Salis has a book called Palestine um, and the word Israel put together, and he calls it Israelstein. And Bill has written on Psalm 83, believing that is an event that's going to happen soon, uh, where they're trying to wipe Israel off the map. Well, he's got a lot going for him, doesn't he? Uh, that's what the his, history of our time is now saying. Uh, the, the nations that are mentioned in Psalm 83 are all adjacent to Israel, and they are talking about wiping Israel off the face of the earth. So maybe he's right on that. I don't know. But I think the dimensions of Gog and Magog uh, make us a little different. Uh, first thing you have to settle, I'm probably telling you too much. Oh. But the first thing you have to settle, uh, and it's not easy, is from chapter 38, verse 2. The old King James says, Chief Prince of Meshach and Tubal. And by phonetic equivalence, which is not necessarily right, because that's not a translation, it's saying it into English, it sounds like Moscow and Tobolsk. But that isn't really the issue of Ezekiel 38, verse 2. The issue is the word chief. The word chief is the Hebrew word rosh. Like the first of the year is rosh hashanah. First of the year. The argument which has existed throughout history, way back even to the early centuries after uh, our Lord was here, is whether or not Rosh is an adjective or a noun. Uh, different Bible translations uh, disagree over this. If it is an adjective, then the King James is right. Chief Prince of Meshach and Tubal. There's just one problem. There is no example of Rosh being an adjective like that in all of literature and grammar. So you're operating from silence. Well, what if it's a noun? If it's a noun, now we do have some connection. Because Rosh is a people and a place in ancient history. And it refers to Russia in our day. Now, there is no argument about that if you believe it's a noun. Well, there are plenty of reasons, both biblically 
and extra-biblically in terms of grammar and history to believe that it's a noun that is referring to the people who have become uh, today Russia, possibly also between the Caspian and Black Sea, Georgia, and Chechnya. Uh, it might also include some other republics, I don't know. Uh, Russia is very much involved in the Middle East. Russia built the most amazing naval ter terminal under the ground, under the water, in Lebanon. They currently have four nuclear submarines sitting there. Why would you need them? Russia is also the great supplier of weapons and materials to design nuclear weapons. In fact, uh, Iran is really angry at Russia today, this week, because Russia joined the United States and Western Europe in blocking Iran from purchasing materials for nuclear activity. And uh, Iran said to Russia, you, you promise us that. So we got a little feud going on there, too. I don't know how that's going to turn out, but it's very interesting. So I'm still going to take my uh, view that it's referring to Armageddon. We have uh, Gog mentioned at the end of the millennium. Yes, in chapter 20 of Revelation. But you can't prove anything from it because that revolt is going to happen at the end of the uh, at the end of the millennium. And to say that it's the Gog and Magog of Ezekiel 38 is a mistake. Why? Because it's referring to what happened in the past as being a similar event. But God's going to destroy that one totally different. Fire's going to come from heaven and destroy it completely. It'll be over. So people say, well, why do that then? And I think there's a very reasonable reason why. In the millennium, we're going to rule over people who um, have until age 100, according to Isaiah 65, to believe in the Lord or they'll be cut off. So this is obviously a youth rebellion, at least under 100, at the end of the millennium. It is very, very possible that the reason there is to show that the real problem is in the human heart. Depravity, sinfulness of an unbelieving generation. Proof that even in a perfect environment with Jesus calling all the shots, you still have the problem of depravity. For the devil will be loosed and will deceive them. That's what it says. Sounds good. Thank you. You're welcome.